The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. St. James, co-founder of the Global Summit, joins me today in this four-part series talking to a lifelong dedication to social justice, hands-on international policy research. This work fuels her passionate dedication to a multi-sector collaboration and the functional vision of the Global Summit. At 20 years old, she began advancing theories linking population, environmental scarcity and poverty, advocating multi-sector collaboration and community empowerment. Inspired by research and related programs in Africa, she founded Empowerment Works in 2001. Her training in transformational mediation and international negotiations further contributed to the seven stages of sustainability, the approach to asset-based community development. She recently taught and launched the seven stages of sustainability to over 90 young women and potential leaders in China for the World Academy for the Future of Women. Melanie's speaking highlights include the 2006 International AIDS Conference in Toronto as co-founder of the Coalition for a Sustainable Africa, unveiling her population theory at the 2004 Sustainable Resources Conference in Boulder. A major inspiration, Melanie St. James' late father, Edward Hallamy, was an inventor of multiple environmental technologies. Seeing his challenges, she realized the need for mass collaboration and public involvement in taking breakthrough solutions to scale. Melanie St. James, welcome to you. Hello, thank you. Great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. We're going to be talking today not only about your life, but also about the Global Summit, uh, to which I am uh, fascinated with, and uh, certainly uh, I cover many of the areas that you have in your vision and mandate. As with all my programs, I like to go back to the early influences of um, the head of an organization like this. Where do you come from, Melanie? Uh, what was it that, looking back at your early life took you into the humanities took you into all the areas of sustainability and climatology and everything everything else that this organization talks to i think it was growing up with a single mother and um having an incredibly diverse um kind of family where i saw very rich and at times we were even homeless and um just really having kind of a sense of compassion for people who are struggling around the world and maybe it's a past life thing. I am not quite sure, but ultimately I did 
study abroad in China and became very concerned with the state of the world and the journey goes on. Um, my father was from Iran and my mother was from Minnesota and I lived back and forth between Santa Barbara and Minnesota and had a lot of time on my own running around in nature, playing with frogs in the creek, riding horses um, unannounced and just was a bit of a free spirit and searcher growing up. How do you see the world today? Um, I talk to so many experts, whether it's in economics or sustainability or politics or the humanities, and from my work in all of these areas, I see frugality being a very important part of our world in the future. Do you see frugality as being a mainstay in the way that we all have to approach life now? It depends on how we define frugality, and I'm assuming you're talking about economic resources and consumption, and absolutely in that sense we do. And the way I see the world, just that's a big, beautiful question. It's worth the threshold, and I feel that we've been at this exciting, perilous threshold since I did go to China and saw the population resource scarcity issues that are going on. We are always finding more incredible solutions. People are waking up. Um, we have so much human potential. We're not getting... I, I, I see it's not just about poverty. It's not just about climate change it's it's all of it it's all of the human condition and it's all of our ability to wake up and um and feel the different types of richness so back to this idea of frugality this um you know we in in the west and in, in the united states or in the more industrialized countries we see our security in economic terms and when I first started going to Africa, what really blew me away and where the, the reason I really felt at home there is I, I felt such a richness of culture and I felt the kind of family and community that I'd never really had growing up in, in the United States. And so I think it's that mutual discovery across cultures and, and finding how we create a kind of security and a richness of living that's beyond monetary resources. Yeah, I witnessed that divide when I directed a film in Nigeria. And I, I cannot remember the quote, but Shakespeare did talk to this. He said that uh, those who live in frugality are very blessed uh, versus those who live in wealth are very often confused and lost. And you see all those extremes and it appears to me that your life is attempting to and very successfully communicate this to everybody involved in this organization that you can uh, create uh, or co-create as you say in your mission statement this vision of everybody coming together in, in all areas of life whether it's business science technology or politics would that be a fair statement more than fair and what i was thinking listening to you is that we all seek a sense of connection and a sense of purpose and a sense of contribution and you know barbara marks hubbard talks about the ego mind and conscious evolution and that we we need that ego to 
maintain our sense of security and our survival in some ways, and then we're consciously evolving towards something else. And I think it's that you know, being conscious of the kinds of symbols that represent security in our own lives. And yeah, this this model, this uh, experience of coming together, it's it's very physical and tangible and economically as far as promoting a more efficient way to get things done and resolve some very tangible issues that we're all facing. But it's also this experience of coming together and feeling whole through that unity, through that uh, way that we actually evolved in community that has been somehow not lost, but distance. We've we've been shifting demographically uh, for several thousand years, and it feels like we're sort of pushed back together right now. Looking back, um, I know that your father was very influential, very important to you, and I know that he really did have some pioneering work. Can you briefly talk about that work that he was involved in, that uh, uh, those technologies that, that he, were, uh, he was working with? Absolutely. He started out as a mechanical engineer and actually a real estate developer. I got to finally move in with him, and he became the head parent uh, for my brother and I when I was 15. And at that point, our real relationship truly began. And at that point, he was actually starting a company called Turbodyne, and it had an environmentally friendly turbo system that essentially cut out particulate matter pollution um, by over 70%, which is a, a major source of um, pollution in California. And I traveled with him. I met presidents and um, vice presidents and went to large meetings throughout Europe and board meetings here in the United States and he took the company public and basically what was a phenomenal breakthrough technology not only for the environment but also for the consumer and savings and reducing gas consumption and performance um, increased it was um, his, his invention uh, was basically suffocated in a joint venture that uh, essentially squashed the company and it just was a testimony to so many wonderful green or socially and environmentally beneficial breakthroughs that go under because they're not convenient for the status quo of that industry. And was was I, was he was he ahead of his time? Do you think? Oh yeah, he had over a hundred patents and he had so many other inventions. And I think if that technology had come through today, I think it. Hopefully it would have been adopted, and um, funny enough, a descendant of that company um, was actually invested in recently by Bill Gates. It's the big, it's Eco Motors LLC, um, was a spinoff, and just times have really changed. So, so yeah, I hope he's kind of watching, and um, I'm, I'm hoping that the Global Summit actually, through the Sustainable Technology Expo, that we can bring some of those greener breakthrough innovations to the limelight so they're not just dependent on deals but the public seeing them and the media seeing them and that they can get out and really be of service you pursued public administration uh, during your academia years international management 
you went on to international relations diplomacy and i was interested that you were educated at the schiller international university in madrid that stage of your life what was the changing point there was there a changing point where you took this life in family and in growing up into the academia environment how did you change then my pivotal shift was going to china when i was 20 and just having a total wake-up call to what was happening in the world we learned about the communications and relationship between the ussr and china during the cold war and things that were going on unknown to the public and i um also learned a lot about what was happening with the environment and even as a child I, I had a, a teacher that was biology um, expert that taught us about climate change when I was about 11 or 12 and so I was always aware of it but then going to China and really being out there and going and traveling on my own also to the Philippines and spending time with villagers and fishermen who had several children and working to put food on their plate it all just became really real to me and I knew that I wanted to spend my life doing whatever I could to address what I thought at that time the solution was population. I thought the big issue was population and environmental resource issues and so I went on uh, to continue international education in Spain um, with international relations and diplomacy, learned a couple languages, went back to Santa Barbara, worked on environmental technologies, thought I would pursue public health and population issues, and ended up going to the Monterey Institute because it was more of a leadership program that allowed you to take on uh, broader issues and, and get involved in multiple types of organizations. And when I was there, I had an opportunity to go to Africa and I always knew I would end up in Africa at some point, but um, it was studying this relationship, actually. My thesis was looking at the relationship between poverty and human security and really asking the question, what's, what's the chicken, what's the egg, what's the causal effect? Do people have a lot of children because they're poor or are they poor because they have a lot of children? And I was actually inquiring and re- researching whether or not there was a kind of a trigger instinctually for survival and so started comparing zoological studies with human behavior and what surprised me on the ground was um, actually that it was that sense of security that that people had that affected whether or not they had children and not only that but how sustainable they are in other parts of their lives and so that was a major shift in my my goal of population policy to looking at how do you create a sense of security at the local community level i guess in that you're talking about as well trying to keep this in context all the frailties of the human position uh, you know all the the frailties as in the fear that you talk about the insecurity the codependency and i'm sure that that all was in your mind what i'd like to ask you though is with this broad knowledge and this ability that you had to travel the world and see all these cultures and start thinking how people people's minds worked did you 
draw a line in the sand in terms of social history? Did you wonder to yourself uh, how we had got to where we had got to now, given, you know, if you go all the way back to Columbus and you go back to the 1492 and you see the way that we uh, went into indigenous populations and we we uh, took the resources and uh, and broke up uh, the cultural identity of countries. Did you start analysing in that way how um, that had affected the world and how that could be part of the solution in what you do and, and where you're going with the Global Summit? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you asked. That big experience and wake up in Africa was actually in an animist culture. Uh, the Jola people that live in the southern Casamance. I'd actually been studying them before going to Senegal and looking at their agricultural systems and their separatist conflict, actually. They were, they'd been in a separatist conflict for 30 years trying to get their territory back. And what's remarkable about them and kind of allows us to see into history a bit more than some other cultures is that even though they've been um, there's been attempted conquerings and they've been interfacing with colonial powers for well over 500 years they've chosen to hold on to their animist belief systems it's uh, of interest to me this because i know last week we talked about the the great uh, john perkins who i had the privilege to uh, join on the program here and he talked about indigenous populations and he talked about his remarkable shift uh, from uh, our world into a special world where he himself had to um, push back uh, from what he did as an economic hitman and he talked about the Amazon and he talked about the indigenous people and how this uh, culture was um, split up, was broken and it takes people like him and you and it takes people to restore that to become very conscious to become very awake to say no more uh, despite the consequences that come out of it uh, in today's world which i recognize in your father because it must have been in some ways heartbreaking to be able to make all that progress and yet be tainted by uh, the pressures of, of society is that what you felt is that what you were seeing um from from your early days as you ventured around africa absolutely and and also just the example of the the health and security and the aliveness and the love um, that was really present there. And, you know, here are these people choosing this way of life and fighting to protect it in the face of globalization. And, yeah, there's, there's a lot to protect. Um, just, you know, talking about the land and the, the sand, I'm kind of thinking of Jared Diamond and looking um, at industrialization and where it shifts. And it's a pattern of linear thinking that I believe encompasses all of it. And I think the breakaway from indigenous lifestyles and creation um, stories that embody nature into... Um, a one-way linear thinking, it becomes at the core of our society, and they they go together. Uh, moving into a city, uh, people tend to get away from nature and tend to think more linearly. And so there's some pulling away from 
that indigenous way of life, we become less sustainable. And so it's part of our survival. And I think just as we're becoming more industrialized, uh, we're also pulling back and seeking community. So, and we are a part of nature also. Uh, and I, I think that's wonderful, the way that you've defined that, because what we found with industrialization was a move from the traditional rural pursuits and lifestyles into the urban way of living and of course that's where in many ways the industrial revolution failed uh, because it broke down all of the old ways all of those old lifestyles that that so many countries had looking at population i had indicated in my notes what i talked to in my letters from america as being this movement of people and competition for resources that I formulated in my own mind. Uh, and but I'd like to talk about that briefly and, and just before I ask for your, your response. It is definitely, to my mind, looking at countries like Rwanda and Bosnia, that people, despite the awful things that occur, uh, the genocide, uh, the, the uh, breakdown of a society, they always do want to return home at the end of the day. In seeing that, and I see it as being a shift that's going to take place, how do you see that occurring? Um, how do you see people wanting to restore culture, uh, restore the indigenous tribes, restore the old ways, and not pushing back on the global village, because I think that that will still be an important part of the world going forward, but how do you think it will take place? I think it has to be conscious and we have to be dedicated to developing and supporting economic systems that value and protect indigenous heritage. It's not going to happen by itself. People need to survive. They need jobs. They need livelihoods. And that's where the consumer comes in. That's where the seven stages to sustainability comes in. That's why it was created. And it's going to take mass collaboration to restore that and also to bring in the kinds of effective positive technologies that have been created recently it's not just about going back in time but it's really using the best that we have now in a concerted effort to restore what what is sustainable and what does honor the gifts of our ancestors and of the natural heritage um, that sustains us. And I love the word empowerment that you use so often, and, and you talk about this collaboration in words between population, environment, poverty, and community. And I had again mentioned in my notes, I talked to this wonderful man in the Middle East who is heading up uh, corporate social responsibility and I was shocked in the program. Uh, it was a very different uh, perspective to the one that we have over here. So in, in order to bring all these together, my view is that it is for people a an awakening, a huge uh, community that uh, has a massive sense of shift in consciousness, which is certainly what I have gone through with this work. In the Global Summit, you are therefore still looking at the large corporations, you're still looking at organizations, whether they're public or NGOs, to change their outlook, to look at things, to take things back to grassroots again. Yeah. And to recognize that we are at the end of the line. A lot of people see us as running 
over a cliff right now, and I don't mean to be alarmist, but we really don't have time to waste. And the bottom line, if we do full cost accounting, is that we really need to look at our global resources collectively. And that is what this is about. And it's about honoring and recognizing the value of each individual on the planet and also what happens when people actually have a voice. What's been proven in community development research and just anyone with common sense that understands a little bit about human psychology, when when people are empowered, and I want to say I'm just I'm constantly learning what it is to be empowered myself. It's an ongoing process. When people are empowered and they feel that they actually have a sense of self-determination, then they are going to contribute more positively and more effectively and be stronger members of society. And so the Global Summit as a platform that honors and recognizes citizens' voices from around the world and recognizes different industrial capacities and economic strengths of uh, different societies and businesses, media groups, artists, educational institutions, social entrepreneurs, we actually uh, can overcome this hurdle. However, the status quo has been um, still stuck in this competition and racing to uh, the greatest profit margin. And so it's a basket or some kind of a circular vision that we can come together and find a way to more mutually support each other well, by empowering those local communities. Yeah, and you know, I, I had alerted you before the program that sometimes I will uh, leave the track uh, for a short while. You know, um, I have covered the oil spill in the Gulf uh, quite heavily and uh, like all of us have been shocked at the results and actually how um, it has been um, discarded uh, as things do uh, these days and people have short memories Right, Haiti? Oh, what happened there? <laughs> well, Forgot yes, that, yeah. but you know I, I look at the way that we have to leave a legacy to our youngsters and my view is, and I've been involved in academia for many years, and, and I don't have a terribly good outlook on it. Um, I, I, th I think it's not as half as good as it could be. But I wonder sometimes, and I'm in context with what you're talking about, that perhaps we should take graduates who have come out of uh, courses in university in sustainability and business, whatever it is, and actually march them along the coastlines of Louisiana to show them in practical terms what this world has done and what it is doing by continuing a massive uh, uh, emphasis on, on money, on greed, on profits. Is that something that you would concur with? Yeah, waking people up to the physical reality and then hopefully enlightening one another about how we can transform ourselves and, you know, see it differently. I definitely had my awakening early on in college, and I think studying abroad or whatever it is that's going to um, get people in touch with their purpose is absolutely vital. And absolutely, and, and what came to mind when you were describing that is just how cut off we are from the realities. People care so much. Yet it's so easy to shut 
off when the media just turns it off. So well, I think I, uh, larger. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think maybe uh, we all have to uh, take accountability for the world that we live in. Um, and there are great things about the social media that we have. Uh, there are great things about technology. Um, certainly a lot of people are so overwhelmed with information through uh, platforms on, on the Internet that they become perplexed. But in my view, uh, it is about what you see with your eyes. And I think for younger people, I think it's very important to bring them into this huge consciousness by actually placing them in the middle of the aftermath of something like the oil spill. Absolutely, and let their hearts and their inspiration go to work. And quite honestly, the youth that I've met and that I meet all the time, I feel like handing the reins over sooner than later. I think they are so incredible and fresh in their perspective. And I I think it really is about everyone doing their part and recognizing, yes, it's their future. We have, I'm sort of in the middle of the generations um, trying to do my part and be doing a lot more. I think people need tools, whether they're at the grassroots level in Zimbabwe or they're at the head of a major Fortune 50 or Fortune 500. People don't know what they can do, and so they tell themselves whatever story is going to help them sleep at night. And so by overwhelming people, I don't think that's the answer. But giving people tools and a sense of unity and purpose and a system and a framework to collaborate and get something done in, I think that's that gives me hope anyway. Let me, uh, before I go to the next point, so we keep moving on this journey, take up on that word that you just used, tools. Uh, I'd look back as a social historian, uh, well read as to the way that the Founding Fathers started this country. And their main premise was that they would arm people to become their own capitalists, to use their gifts that God had given them, uh, and to um, use their tools. And my feeling on that is that as we have moved into a society now that is less about manufacturing, less about industry, and more about technology, it is possibly much more important and severe now in the need to arm young people in creating their own tools around technology itself and thinking differently about how they can actually use technology as that tool. Absolutely, exactly. That's That was actually the catalyst for the Global Summit on many levels. It was to deliver this online platform for mass collaboration that delivers the how-to tools, uh, allows sustainable and appropriate technology groups to actually transfer what's working to where it's really needed to allow different groups to uh, collaborate in a framework that is relevant across uh, towns, villages, and cities. Before I move on, I just wanted to touch on the transformational, I believe. Uh, Transformational mediation, yeah. Yes. Can you explain about that? Can you talk to me about that briefly? Yes, I took a course with Judith Rubenstein we, in Santa Barbara back in 1997, and it goes beyond litigation or somebody mediating between two people to where two or more parties actually totally 
transform their relationship and heal and come out with a major win-win. Now, does that, in that process, defining sets of human beings, one, one being a leader and one being a follower, and perhaps that might be a perplexing question, but, but I think it's, it, it's one that I would like to look at. Because if we look back in history, we have followers and we have leaders. Mm-hmm. And it always takes uh, 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 leaders uh, like Gandhi um, or, or Luther King or, you know, to change the way that people think and behave. Well, transformational mediation is definitely a game-changing process. And it takes social entrepreneurs and people to put it out there, just like counsel methodologies and any kind of transformative communication process. I think it's also game-changing because it's not so much about hierarchy, but really what does it take to create win-win mutually beneficial solutions. And if you're you're talking about that in this linear fashion uh, in the corporate arena, um, you're talking about taking the CEO around an executive boardroom table and his shareholders. You're talking about the workers on the shop floor and the middle management and the citizens at the end of it that are the recipients of whatever that product or service are and joining minds and making them collaborate completely. Exactly. And for everyone to see the whole system. And I think that's what's in our DNA from evolving in small communities and really at the heart being whole system thinkers, yet we're in this sort of 5,000-year sabbatical of linear expansion. That might sound a bit abstract, but it touches on when you said, is there a line in the sand in history where we moved away from our roots? And I think uh, our, our DNA and who we are as humanity is about seeing the whole picture and coming together and and that i think is very nurturing so there seems to be some kind of a magnet towards it 2001 and you formed empowerment works what was that in preparation for the global summit that was the groundwork that was actually birthed out of a meeting a vehicle to support and implement programs that were being led in collaboration with local citizens in Zimbabwe and Senegal, projects that I'd begun during graduate school. One was related to HIV-AIDS prevention and orphan care in Zimbabwe, and in Senegal it was about promoting medicinal plant uh, value for conservation of the rainforest and also to empower and maintain the traditional heritage in the Jola territory. And when I looked at basically empowerment works and those initial projects were the foundation of the seven stages to sustainability, which is the framework for the global summit and what really brings people together in effective collaboration across different sectors. So that was, that's where it connects to the Global Summit. So now we arrive here at the Global Summit. And as in the notes, I would like to talk about the methodology behind that sustainability. And you talk and use this word asset, uh, asset, asset-based uh, community development. Can you give me a definition of the way uh, or the context in which the, you are using uh, asset and, and applying it to community development, uh, community cooperation? 
it goes right back to the original conversation about frugality and richness and that richness in the community what are the inherent assets it could be the dances it could be the fabrics it could be the process of uh, dialogue that keeps the peace in a village asset-based community development is actually movement that is growing it doesn't seem to have a face i've looked for where's the head of the asset-based community development movement this um, idea of local communities strengths being recognized before their problems is really where it's at and that is directly related to empowerment people feel good about themselves they feel good about where they come from they think about what they can do not what they're unable to do because they don't have aid money or they don't have latrines or whatever those physical things uh, traditional less effective aid systems tend to deliver from the top down asset-based community development really looks into the community for what can be built upon and let me let me just ask you in that uh, bringing back in the corporate sector again and i had a, a wonderful conversation recently with uh, michael lynch from chicago talking to the way in which industry needs to concentrate more on those values that you talk about there so that it doesn't provide a generic product that they assume will uh, service any community in any part of the world in any culture but actually go out and ask them what they need what do you need as a culture is this part of that plan in order to give them the strength to rebuild their cultures rebuild those communities by uh, corporations buying into that and actually needing to find out what they need whether it's agriculture or industry yeah, from all parts of the world, whether it's from the local instrument maker, for example, in Zimbabwe, there's groups making mbiras or making artwork, uh, or it could be um, an electric, um, a wind power or some kind of a solar company. It's that mutual exchange, and I think this process of looking at what not only the needs but what the assets are and then finding the right fit i think it's going to be dramatically beneficial for any corporation that adopts that as a principle moving on therefore um i know that you worked with uh, women in china yes. and you worked with them uh, with this seven stage of sustainability i am fascinated by this i'm also fascinated that this program with its huge audience actually it, it, part of that audience is from china how did you see these women in China react? Because I've worked in China. I worked there for five years, and I know it's a completely different culture to here. How did you formulate that in your mind before you could work with these women? It was actually quite simple and natural for China's reality today. There is so much migration to the cities, as you know. There's a great, great cultural heritage that has shifted and much of it's been lost, but it's also a great pride in China. And so the seven stages to sustainability, in addition to being a collaboration framework, it's also a philosophy and it's advocating 
this embracing of the new while honoring and uh, restoring and building upon ancient traditions. And, and so the philosophy was very natural. The experience with the young woman was so incredible. I think it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And the timing was pretty magical. It was about exactly 15 years since I went. When I was 20, I got this opportunity to go and launch Empowerment Works curriculum of the seven stages to sustainability for the World Academy for the Future of Women in their first year. So it had never been done before. It was uh, very, very, very well received by them. They actually felt more capable and more directed in taking on the projects that they had in their heart. That's what one of the young women said. And it was it really addresses the issue of uh, needing to create local livelihoods in their villages and countering this mass shift to urbanization. It seems interesting to me because you're talking about sustainability to these women, I would imagine, mainly in the rural areas. And isn't it ironic in life that they are probably less damaging than anybody else in their environments? They, they live green. They have yeah. less, less impact, you know, uh, consumers over here. That's interesting to me that you were nevertheless talking about sustainability to those who um, were less guilty of uh, polluting this world. Absolutely, and it's the same thing in Africa. It's one African, I think, equals the same amount of environmental impact as um, we're 100 Africans to one American, and I don't know what the ratio is for China, but it's it's a huge difference. And they're really the, the victims of mass production. I spoke to many students. I was actually at a university there, and it was the same story over and over. They used to be able to play in the creek 10 years ago. They used to be able to enjoy nature, and now they can't. It's a toxic environment, and they've literally watched the industrialization encroach on their uh, maybe somewhat rural hometowns. And it's also sad they don't have a voice there. They don't have an, so much of an ability to speak up against environmental toxins and pollutants and things that are happening right around them. When I was teaching, there was actually a crisis where lead paint was being used in an elementary school and hundreds of children were uh, very ill and some of them actually died. So there's all of those differences. As I move forward in my own life, I realize that by talking to uh, the, the greatest scientists in the world, like uh, Professor Bill Tiller, that it is the energy that that we emit that changes those around you. Certainly, um, I've experienced that uh, in recent times. And I look at those people that you're talking about. I would imagine going forward that it is most likely that people in that situation, uh, these women in these rural areas, through this expanding sense of consciousness will actually be the group of human beings that will eventually change the world, will eventually get this message across. Uh, th they may appear to be less armed or not have uh, access to resources right now, 
but it is in my mind uh, that sense of consciousness that comes through community as people build and think the same and become conscious that will actually change the paradigm of the world that we live in today. Absolutely, and it's so real to them. They are on fire. They're fearless, and they just blew me away. The passion and the commitment and the creativity that the young women I had the honor to work with as students and dialogue with about all of these issues, whether it's in China or around the world. A lot of them were passionate about going to Africa. I actually brought Wangari Matai's documentary, Taking Root, and showed it to over 500 students at an open film session that we put on. It was so incredibly relevant to what people in China are going through. And so there, there's a huge global awakening. And the people in China are not their government. They're, they really are connected to other citizens and communities around the world that are struggling to maintain a sustainable environment and health. They're, they're absolutely on fire. And I have no doubt that they will be the sea change. I, again, am interested in this because now you're here in the States and my goodness me, you, you must be facing some real dichotomies. You know, you have this set of people who are close to nature. They, persevere uh they are the recipients of pollution even in the rural areas but they persevere and they are close uh to uh, what is absolutely wonderful about this world and and i'm sure that they know it and they celebrate it notwithstanding and then in this country you are now working in the global summit and you are working with people in the uh, developed world uh, many of which are reluctant to change their ways, to uh, m- move away from the need to make money, the need to keep uh, pursuing uh, money as an idol. How have you personally worked with that transition? How do you handle that? Understanding that it's all about security. It's, they're just symbols. It's just people needing to feel secure at the end of the day and to feel a sense of community and to feel strength and to feel good about what they have and who they are. The biggest shift was going back and forth to Zimbabwe uh, back in 2002 and 2003. I actually set up an AIDS clinic there uh, using medicinal plant treatments and it was very effective actually and those treatments have been uh, and a little, little different than what what you asked me but when I think of the transition and the shift between worlds, it was interviewing women who've lost multiple children, you know, being full-blown themselves and actually getting pregnant so that they couldn't maintain an immune system so they can take care of their older children. I mean, it was such an affront to human dignity. And then to go from that right back into a pretty affluent reality in Santa Barbara and Beverly Hills and you know different families realities it's just something you just shut it off it's it's almost like you become two different people whatever the perspective is it we're really all human and everything is relative to uh, our own situation i i feel like a little bit of um I don't know if maverick's the right word but going in between realities has been something i've done all of my life so the environmental side of that um, is, is pretty much the same. As we close down towards the end of the program today in this uh, long-term series, 
uh, and many more issues to talk about, especially approaching the summit in November. Can I finish this off today uh, by asking you, the Global Summit, this amazing uh, stage, which brings together all these amazing people, and you do in your mission statement use the word co-create, which I love. What is it that you are hoping for this year with the Global Summit and how uh, should people realize the importance um, of the work that you and, and everybody uh, is doing um, in working up to this event in November? That we're all part of the solution, that we all have something phenomenal to contribute, and that through the Global Summit, there will be an adoption of some very effective tools that enable people to continue contributing and having an impact, whatever their background is around the year, that we can actually start a movement of people, businesses, organizations, media groups, artists, etc., that are demonstrating the multifaceted wealth that can be gained through collaboration, both spiritually, emotionally, um, resource-wise in coming together, and that we road test this, that we take it out, we um, get it on the ground, and really prove this concept of co-creation. So when you say co-create, it's bringing the best that we have to the table for humanity. How important if you break down those that will attend, uh, these wonderful people who are in media, in the arts, in technology, in science, in the humanities. How do you look at each of those areas and decide on the method of interaction between them to bring them together? We started asking that question in 2008 at the planning symposium with a couple hundred people. And each of the sectors that we represent went into their own think tanks and they identified their own guiding principles. And each one does have its own deep and most positive attribute. Bringing them all together, there's generally a sense of mutual purpose that's relevant to the whole community. And there's something natural that occurs when those different groups come together. It doesn't need to be totally prescriptive. But the seven stages to sustainability is a roadmap. And so it naturally brings out what are the um, partners in the room, who's there, whether you're in a local village or you're in Hong Kong, and a, a way to weave those pillars of the community together. And that's why those six sectors uh, that are inherent to the model that we're, we're sharing they're relevant whether you're at a very grassroots level or you're at an urban level. And through the seven stages, then those different sectors can actually more effectively work together around the world to address whatever is most critically needed or whatever the greatest opportunity is from the ground up. So you're appointing all the elements in those seven stages to be as equally important um, and meaningful to any of these people that come into this to illuminate to them that they have a great part in it, but without them there is nothing uh, at the end of it unless they all believe in, in all those different elements and all basically wrap their arms around each other here to, to create a, a final resolution at the end of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is an integrated approach, and we are absolutely um, shepherding people towards commitments towards the end of the summit. There are interactive innovation processes going all the way through around the five topics, everything from redefining human security related to women's health, child development and hunger, to shifting economies of scale, looking at bioregional trade and local and global currency systems and everything in between, including uh, beyond climate change, looking at the sixth mass, mass extinction. And so through those issues, people can come together and then commit to different collaborations that we will um, seek to support throughout the year into the 2011 bioregionals where we really bring it back into the localized context. And as you indicated at the beginning of the program, uh, we live in a severe world and there is no time to lose. And your mission, therefore, with this is as those wonderful women in China find their own way in their own natural environment in a very different uh, uh, place than possibly people in the Western world, you are doing the same. You are essentially changing that uh, consciousness here so that people at the Global Summit come out of this feeling the same way, having the same sense of consciousness, so that everybody can um, understand what has to be done spiritually uh, and in changing the world so that that group of people in that society can be exactly the same as the group of people that you have here that will be attending this summit. Yes, and I wanted to say there are people from all over the world that are reaching out to us. It's absolutely remarkable. I think we've had more inquiries from the um, far corners of the planet than we have from San Francisco. Just this morning, I got an email from a woman that's the head of a women's foundation in Nepal who said that she traveled a 1,000 kilometers to email us and ask if she could submit a paper, and that... I wish I had her exact words in front of me, but she was saying how important it is for the grassroots to come together with the people who can make things happen and work together. And I hear that all the time when I am at the local level, whether it's a village in Zimbabwe or the women in China or in South America, they are just wanting to do it together and have a piece of a conversation. They want to be involved. They have so much to say, and they're absolutely such vital stakeholders. So we have submissions and people raising money to get there. We're offering pretty much any grassroots citizen, um, you know, from a developing country scholarships and just really looking for support in helping them get to us and be part of the conversation. So as much as we're excited to shift the uh, philosophies and transform and uh, have a great shift for the citizens in the United States that are there, we're really, really looking forward to bridging cultures and uh, perspectives from around the world through the Global Summit. Well, as we go to our next program, we'll be talking about many of these issues in depth, uh, talking about climate change, oceans, biodiversity, etc., talking about those shifting economies of scale. Uh, Melanie St. James, it's really been a great privilege today talking to you. I'm looking forward to this long-term series, learning about your work and uh, getting to know you. I wish you all the best uh, until our next program together. 
Thank you, David, and thank you so much to everyone who's on the call today and listening. I'm really looking forward to this, and thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you as well have enjoyed this program as much as I have with Melanie St. James today. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this wonderful world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management